0: Ooh. Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport.
1: I'm Tim McInerney.
0: I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Can okay, welcome, hear Naomi? Anouar fa' Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Chaos at Kabul's airport, a crush of thousands desperate to get out.
2: The government has confirmed a small group of army rangers and two Department of Foreign Affairs officials are expected to arrive in Kabul this evening to help facilitate the evacuation of remaining citizens. Afghanistan
0: political leaders gave
2: up. The Afghan military collapsed. If anything, the developments of the past week reinforced that ending U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan now was the right decision.
0: This August, the United States' 20-year war in Afghanistan came to a chaotic conclusion. As the Taliban swept to power ahead of an agreed withdrawal of US forces, thousands of people desperate to flee the country became trapped.
1: Among them were Irish citizens and Afghan-Irish families, many of whom had travelled back to see relatives during the school holidays.
0: But there was a problem. Ireland had no long-range aircraft with the ability to make the trip to Kabul to bring our citizens home.
1: In this episode, we'll find out how the Irish Defence Forces worked around that problem to get Irish citizens out of Kabul.
0: This is part two of our two-part episode on Irish military neutrality. In our previous instalment, we heard how the policy was born in the 1930s, at a time when the Irish president Eamon de Valera feared that involving Ireland in the Second World War could crush the newly independent and very fragile state.
1: In the second part, we'll hear from Conor Gallagher of the Irish Times about how Irish officials worked behind the scenes to get people out of Kabul, and how the event provoked debate about Ireland's defence capabilities.
2: The most striking thing was the almost agonising tension while the mission was going on. The security situation in Kabul airport was deteriorating rapidly.
0: We'll try to cut through the noise to lay out the reality of Ireland's current policy on neutrality and defence, a deeply contested and politically controversial issue that is set to come to the fore again as the European Union debates how to defend its interests in an era when the United States is in retreat on the global stage.
1: We'll be speaking to security analyst and retired Army Captain Tom Clonan, who
3: tells us this. I think for an international audience, it's important to understand that Ireland has a very, very small army. The total number of personnel across Army, Naval Service and Air Corps is about 9,000 personnel. So it's very, very small. And for such a small organisation, it punches well above its weight.
0: And we'll hear from Simon Coveney, Ireland's Minister for Defence and Foreign Affairs, who tells us this.
4: There are a number of countries in the European Union that are not members of NATO, that regard themselves as non-militarily aligned and neutral states. Ireland is one of them. Uh, And uh, the beauty of the European Union is that it, it accommodates that perspective.
0: But first, we want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Irish at Heart, the world's best subscription box, full of beautiful Irish made products.
1: Irish at Heart was founded by Mary Moore, a born and bred Dubliner whose passion for craft and design led to her founding Irish at Heart to provide customers around the world with curated themed selections of Irish goodness from small Irish companies. When you sign up, you receive a themed box of Irish artisan and craft products, so maybe something to wear, something to gift, or just something to enjoy yourself, and all of that is at a discounted rate. Prices for a box start at around $44, but the actual value of a typical box is about $70.
0: Right now, you can get their Irish Winter Wonderland box, which would be perfect if you wanted to send a little bit of Ireland to your friends and family this Christmas. If you want to get your hands on the box, though, you've got to act quickly because stocks are limited and they're selling extremely quickly. So if you want one, head over to the Irish at Heart website now to get yours. You can find them at at irish-at-heart.com. That's irish at heart with a hyphen between each word dot com.
1: Yes, so if you want your box to arrive in time for the Christmas holidays, do make sure to get that order in before the end of this month. The service has been rated excellent by Trustpilot, by the way, which is always reassuring when you're shopping online. This is also a great and convenient way to support small, independent businesses in Ireland this Christmas, while treating your friends and family to some gorgeous
0: Irish-made products. Of course, listeners to this podcast get an extra 15% off their first delivery if you use the code Irish Passport. Just pop it in the discount bar when you sign up. Thanks again to Irish at Heart for their support, and let's get back to the show, Tim.
1: Okay, so Naomi, let's go back to August of this year and the extremely unstable situation that arose suddenly uh, in the Afghan capital, Kabul. Uh, Among the many international citizens who suddenly had to try and escape from the capital at that point were dozens of Irish people, and they had found themselves essentially trapped, uh, causing a huge dilemma for the Irish state. So Naomi, maybe you can just lay out for us, you know, how did this whole scenario come about in
0: the first place? In a nutshell, it happened because the former U.S. President Donald Trump agreed a withdrawal date of U.S. troops from Afghanistan with the Taliban. That's the fundamentalist Mm. military organization that fought the U.S. occupation in Afghanistan for years. The current president, Joe Biden, was really determined to keep to the date of August 31st this year for withdrawal. Now, the plan was that the Afghan government, led by elected officials and President Ashraf Ghani, was supposed to hold on to power once the Western forces left. But that didn't happen. As the troops began to pull out, the Taliban dramatically swept across the country and the Afghan army crumbled. Then the President Ashraf Ghani fled the country and the Taliban took power, declaring a new government that they called an Islamic Emirate. Due to deep fears about violence and reprisals against women and liberals based on the Taliban's previous record in power, many people, and particularly those who had Western links, tried to flee the country all at once. At this point, the Taliban was in control and operating checkpoints, stopping people from leaving. And the only part still under Western control was Kabul airport. And that's because U.S. troops were stationed there. So thousands of people began accumulating outside the airport trying to get to planes to get out of the country. And the Europeans who had people stuck there in Kabul and in Afghanistan pleaded with the US President Joe Biden to keep his troops there longer past the US deadline so that they would have more time to evacuate people. But Biden refused because he said there were risks to US forces. And sure enough, there was a deadly attack. Well, we begin in Kabul, where there's renewed urgency to evacuate thousands of Afghans, a day after a bombing killed scores of people trying to flee. ISIL-K claimed responsibility for that attack outside Kabul airport that killed at least 110 people and injured dozens more.
1: So as all this was happening, uh, countries and embassies around the world had their sights set on citizens in Afghanistan. Uh, What were the Irish authorities doing to get Irish citizens to safety?
0: I spoke to Conor Gallagher, who's a colleague at the Irish Times, and he wrote a piece that told the backstory of the Irish Kabul evacuation. He spoke to the officials who worked on it behind the scenes. So the first major problem was that... Ireland had no aircraft that could fly as far as Kabul in such short notice, and nor were their planes large enough to undertake an evacuation like this.
2: This incident has kind of shown up the disadvantages of not having such aircraft. Like, we do obviously have some aircraft, but they don't have the reach to get to Kabul at short notice, and and they're just not big enough really either to evacuate large numbers of people. Thank the Irish Defence Forces have excellent relationships with other militaries and never really have too much of a problem in securing flights because this is something we do semi-regularly initially they considered going to the americans because the americans were 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 flying in and out of afghanistan every minute but it was judged that they looked like they had their hands full with their own evacuation thousands and thousands of people to evacuate so we went to the french and said have you space in your plane and the french apparently agreed pretty much instantly you know yes we have a large aircraft going out there anyway you're welcome to a few seats Eventually, they left Baldonnell Aerodrome on an Irish aircraft, which flew to French Air Force Base. Then they got on French military transport, which flew to Kabul.
0: Once on the ground, however, the Irish team discovered that there were actually far more Irish citizens and residents trying to get out than they previously thought. Because it was August. It was the middle of the school holidays and a time when many families had travelled to see relatives in the country before becoming trapped.
2: When the mission landed, they'd already gotten ten people out of the airport. Irish diplomats were working from the Irish embassy in Abu Dhabi, which is about eighteen hundred kilometers away. The nearest embassy to Kabul. These people were relatively easy, and I stress the word "relatively" to get out because they were mostly working for NGOs and charities in the country. They were single people, as in they were traveling on their own. They were working in family units, and they'd be fairly experienced or mostly be fairly experienced travelers and would be able to navigate you know, their way to the airport and past checkpoints, because this is something they would have had to do for, for as part of their job. So they were able to get them out in dribs and drabs over the course of about seven days after the capital fell to the Taliban. But that meant that the people who were left were all family units. So there's about 36 or so people, I believe, that they are aware of. Most were Afghani-Irish. These were people who they knew would be harder to get through to the airport, especially as reports were coming in. that The Taliban were stopping Afghani citizens from getting to the airport. uh, And that's when they they decided to send this uh, military and and, and diplomatic team. But once, for some reason, shortly after they got on the ground in, in Kabul, Dozens more people came forward seeking help to get out. And, and this these included Irish citizens, Irish passport holders and Afghanis who had Irish residency. Uh, one person told me that they suspect, you know, the images from the chaotic American withdrawal of, you know, those horrible images we saw of. People falling from American military transports as they took off may have scared some people who were originally planning to stay in Afghanistan and it, it might have made them decide that uh, now it was time to leave.
0: So at this point, the Irish lack of capacity was well known. And I understand that without needing to be asked, the Ukrainian defence forces actually approached their Irish counterparts to check if we needed help to evacuate people and whether they could offer mm-hmm. us some seats on their planes. In the end, it was the French and the Finnish defence forces who provided seats for the Irish citizens needing to leave and for the team of Irish diplomats and army rangers who escorted them out.
2: The most striking thing was the almost agonising tension that uh, officials back in Ireland at least felt on the ground as they watched while the mission was going on. And It was only a 40-hour mission, but during that time, the security situation in Kabul airport was deteriorating rapidly. And that was capped off by that tragic explosion outside, which killed dozens, which no Irish people, thankfully, were caught up in. But uh, many Afghans uh, were killed and and U.S. military personnel were killed. That actually occurred just as the Irish flight was was leaving. So the mission was tinged with kind of sadness, frustration, because although they managed to get 26 Irish people out in in a 40-hour period, which is undoubtedly extremely impressive. Roughly 75 Irish citizens and dependents remain stranded in Afghanistan with no obvious means of escape. You know, the job is, as one person said to me, it's only half done.
0: Connor has been writing about concerns about the underfunding of the Irish Defence Forces for years. And I asked him whether this incident could galvanise a change in policy.
2: It's probably too early to say if it's changed the debate. I think it's certainly made the debate louder and maybe brought it more into the mainstream. What military people will tell you is uh, just a lack of value placed on the Defence Forces. The Department of Expenditure will tell you, you know, well, if you want 100 million for long-range transport aircraft, where's that money going to come from? Is it going to come from the Department of Social Protection? Is it going to come from the Department of Health? You know, we have to find that money somewhere and it's about priorities. The military have also, would love a strategic transport capability, but they also have other priorities like, you know, our naval ships, we can't put all our ships to sea because we don't have enough sailors to man them to the extent that we had to get assistance from the EU to patrol our own waters a few times this year. There's some very well-informed, capable commentators on defence matters, and they've been making the point that we lurch from one crisis to another, the cyber attack, not being able to patrol our waters, not being able to see what's in the skies over Ireland, and then we say, we need this, we need this, we need this. But there's it's never part of a strategic plan. There's not there's never been much joined up thinking in Irish defence planning. And I'd even go as far as to say is we've never really been sure what we want our military to do.
1: So it's probably a good idea to sketch out what the situation actually is when it comes to Irish defence. Neutrality and the public perception of what neutrality means in Ireland is a really important element of all this. It's perhaps the most important element. Um, Ireland has been a neutral state for as long as anyone can remember, and a significant proportion of the Irish public are deeply, even culturally, attached to this as a policy. It's so powerful, in fact, that it can drive political outcomes. We already mentioned in part one that fears that Irish neutrality might be under threat were central to the rejection of certain EU treaties by Irish voters in past referendums.
0: The interesting thing about it, though, is that the meaning of neutrality as an Irish policy isn't clearly defined. And so what it means in practical terms can be very contested. The phrase that the Irish government has developed to describe it is, quote, the traditional policy of military neutrality. And you should note that word policy because a policy choice is something that's set by a government and it's something that can change over time.
1: This is a common misunderstanding. Is there actually any protection at all for neutrality in the Irish constitution?
0: Yeah, there's a fairly widespread public perception that Irish neutrality is in the constitution, but that's really contested. In fact, the opposition Sinn Fein party actually tried to introduce a bill in 2019 to put neutrality into the constitution and that attempt fails, which kind of, illustrates that, you know, it's not really there, or at least it's not there clearly. So let's look at what the constitution actually says. Tim, why don't you read these following sentences?
1: All right. Okay, I have them here in front of me. The uh, first uh, relevant part is in Article 1, which says, Ireland affirms its devotion to the ideal of peace and friendly cooperation amongst nations founded on international justice and morality. Okay, then there's Article 2, which says, Ireland affirms its adherence to the principle of the Pacific settlement of international disputes by international arbitration or judicial determination. And then there's Article 9, which says. The state shall not adopt a decision taken by the European Council to establish a common defence pursuant to Article 1.2 of the treaty referred to in subsection 7 of this section, where that common defence would include the state. Okay, well, that's that's a little bit wordy, but nowhere in here can I really see anything that concrete. Like, this is all very open to interpretation as far as I can see.
0: I mean, the key thing is that there is no mention of the word neutrality. So this, mm. these sentences can be interpreted in very different ways. Stuff like, you know, a commitment to peace and the settlements of disputes uh, through legal procedures, you know, I dare say most states would agree with that. Um, you know, states mm. that go to war all the time would probably agree on that. You sure. know, most countries, I'd say, would not declare that they're intent on war but you know rather that they're actually working to preserve peace what differs is their interpretation about how to best do that Mm. so the way that the Irish state broadly describes its own policy of military neutrality is basically that it's not a member of military alliances that's sometimes described as non-participation
1: Okay right now it's it's really interesting in this context when you consider how fuzzy the idea of neutrality how, how fuzzy it is that Ireland's defense forces are so strikingly small compared to our European neighbors
0: yeah it is actually really dramatic so according to the latest collated eu figures for 2021 Ireland spends the least amount as a proportion of its gdp of any member state on defense so 0.2% mm. of gdp Um, Just for comparison, the highest was Little Estonia, which spent 2.1%. And yeah, Ireland's defence forces are accordingly extremely small. We have an army of 7,300 people, roughly, an air force of about 730 people with 20 planes and a navy of just over 1000 people and nine ships but of those nine ships we only have enough staff to actually man six of them so that's extremely small yeah
1: these these are these are really strikingly small numbers and even when you consider Ireland's very very small population like much smaller than a, a lot of uh, similar sized european nations around the place these are still really small numbers <laughs> like these are, like um a good uh, or an interesting comparison uh, you might make is with perhaps the most famous neutral state in the world uh Switzerland uh which also has the world's oldest neutrality policy so uh Switzerland is, has a similar landmass to Ireland I suppose it has a fair just a slightly larger population 8.6 million but the Swiss version of neutrality is very stark in contrast to the Irish interpretation of what that means The Swiss version is entirely based around a large and well-funded military who can defend the country from invasion at a moment's notice. The Defence Forces of Switzerland are more than a thousand times larger than the Defence Forces of Ireland. It has 140,000 active personnel, about 300 planes, and about 20,000 people in their air force. But in addition to that, there are always about 3 million people available for military service in Switzerland at any one time. Because, of course, Switzerland requires all able-bodied men, which in practice includes about two-thirds of all men in the country, to undertake compulsory military service, where they undergo basic army training for a few months. Lots of women do military service too, by the way, but it's, uh, it's voluntary for women. And I actually, I, I spent a year living in Switzerland um, not that long ago, and, you know, the military is everywhere. You just see people in, in military uniform going back and forth around the place all the time. It's just a very mm. militarized society. But in Ireland, like to even see a soldier out and about, it's really very rare in most parts of the country.
0: It is, it has, you know, been rare, definitely. It's quite interesting during the pandemic, the Irish Defence Forces have played a more visible role, because they've been out and about setting up testing centres, and you know, doing a lot of sort of shoring up the state's response to COVID-19 and I think we can probably expect them to become more visible going forward as well because Ireland is set to have a lot more weather disasters due to climate change so I would expect that you will see that kind of use of the defence forces in like civil defence as it were Uh, but getting back to neutrality this policy means that Ireland is not a member of NATO That's the mainly North American and European defence alliance that grew out of the wake of the Second World War. And Ireland isn't alone in that. The other EU member states that are also neutral or non-aligned are Austria, Cyprus, Finland, Malta and Sweden.
1: Okay, and I suppose that's mainly because neutral states are just not really compatible with organisations like this. Is that it?
0: I mean, the definition, the most common definition of neutrality means not being in military alliances like NATO. Right. In addition to that, all of those neutral or non-aligned EU member states, they all have some kind of opt-out or special arrangement with regards to EU defence cooperation, meaning that they can basically choose not to take part in EU military stuff.
1: Okay, right. So, um, despite all that, Ireland's defence forces do, however, undertake really, really quite a lot of missions with the United Nations. As a matter of fact, Ireland has a bit of a reputation when it comes to UN peacekeeping. It has the longest unbroken record of taking part in those missions of any nation in the world. So that's a really, you know, real and long-standing commitment that we can see there. Now, my impression, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that participation in UN peacekeeping missions is something that has cross-political support in Ireland, like even among parties that are most sceptical about involvement in overseas operations generally. Naomi, like what do these missions, these UN peacekeeping missions, what do they actually involve for the Irish Defence Forces?
0: So typically it might be, say, if a war-torn area or region has signed a peace treaty, then the parties that were involved in that might invite the United Nations to oversee how the peace is implemented. And then members of the United Nations would voluntarily send troops to do that mission. And the idea is that those troops only use force as a very last resort. Um, you can have different kinds of peacekeeping as well. You can have military peacekeeping and you can also have civilian missions. A civilian mission might mean sending Guardi, for example, to help with border monitoring or judges to help with kind of pulling together a legal system or something like that. Hmm. All in all, Ireland has taken part in 20 of these missions all over the world, including in Mali, Lebanon, Congo, Cyprus, and continually since 1958.
1: Wow. All right. Okay. And at the moment, Ireland actually sits on the UN Security Council, right?
0: Yeah, really interesting. Ireland was actually elected to be on the Security Council in one of its 10 rotating seats uh, for this year and next year. Of course, the five permanent members are China, France, uh, Russia, the UK and the US and each one of the members of the Security Council has a vote. Their job is basically to determine the existence of a threat to peace or an act of aggression and Ireland actually chaired the council earlier this year and was advocating for more action to help in Ethiopia which is experiencing a really horrific civil war.
1: Now I saw a description somewhere of Ireland's reputation in that role as being quite an authoritative one. Ireland seems to be seen as this small neutral country That has successfully come through a tough history and has experience of conflict. And as such, it's a kind of, you know, voice of conscience on matters to do with peaceful resolution.
0: I had quite an interesting chat with Tom Clonan about this and about the overall state of Irish defence. So Tom is a former Irish soldier himself who took part in a peacekeeping mission in Lebanon and he now works as a security analyst, as an academic. He writes for the Journal, a popular online news website in Ireland. So let's hear from Tom.
3: Tom Clonan is my name. I'm an academic in the Technological University in Dublin. I'm a journalist, Um, security analyst and columnist with the journal.ie. And in a previous life, I was an army officer in the Irish defence forces. I served in the Middle East and as an election supervisor in the former Yugoslavia.
0: How would you explain what the Irish defence forces do primarily?
3: I think for an international audience, it's important to understand that Ireland has a very, very small army. The total number of personnel across army Naval Service and Air Corps is about 9,000 personnel. So it's very, very small. And for such a small organization, it punches well above its weight. Um, so at present, for example, we have troops in Lebanon on a peacekeeping mission there with UNIFIL. We have uh, troops in Syria on the Golan Heights, and we have observers all around the world. We, we've had this tradition of international involvement over the years. We're a neutral state but there have been some very, very significant developments with regard to our armed forces in in the last two decades. In 2000, for example, the Defence Forces Ireland did peacekeeping for the United Nations. So they really did just one thing for one international organisation, and that was peacekeeping for the UN. But since 2000, over the last two decades, we have become more and more integrated into international military structures. So We now, as of 2021, we do peacekeeping and peace enforcement, which is the full spectrum of combat operations for the United Nations, for NATO, um, for the European Union. And we have participated in NATO missions in Afghanistan, for example. We've been there since 2002 to 2016 as part of Operation Enduring Freedom, um, which was a UN Security Council mandated mission but conducted by NATO and led by the United States. So we were active participants in that. We've been in the, uh, NATO missions in Kosovo, and we have led the first international European Union mission down to Central African Republic and Chad. We, we really, I suppose, expanded the roles that we're involved in whilst maintaining our neutral status.
0: Perhaps some people might be confused about if you're involved in operations in Afghanistan, like how can that happen as a neutral country?
3: Well, that's a really good question. I suppose it's one that is best answered by our politicians. So we joined uh, an organization called Partnership for Peace, which has what's called observer status at NATO. And as a consequence, we can participate in NATO-led operations as a neutral state and, and some other neutral states do this from time to time. Uh, whilst we are not militarily aligned, we are from time to time part of kind of like political coalitions of the willing, as they're referred to in the in the 21st century. But we, we, we have a kind of um, an unusual status in Europe, because whilst we're very active and involved internationally, um, domestically, our, our defence forces have suffered a great deal in the last 20 years. So, For example, Ireland spends the lowest of its GDP on defence in the entire European Union. As a consequence, we have become more and more reliant on our European neighbours for some very, very basic elements of our our national security.
0: Ireland's small defence capabilities have sometimes been called a black hole in the side of European defence. And the debate about this tends to flare up whenever a weakness is exposed. So this happened over the Kabul airlift, as we discussed. It's also happened whenever Russian jets try to enter Irish-controlled airspace. When this happens, and it does every now and again, Ireland doesn't have the technology to detect that they're there or the aircraft to intercept them. So it's the job of the British Royal Air Force to scramble jets to escort them out and also to notice that they're there in the first place. There was also a lot of concern uh, provoked about maritime capabilities this August because a Russian ship with spy technology called the Yantar came and basically nosed around the undersea cables that are in the sea off the west of Ireland. Those cables are important because they connect the communications of Europe and the US. There's also NATO cables down there, along with everybody's data or whatever emails you've been sending all day. There were concerns that this ship was attempting to intercept those communications. I spoke to Tom Clonan about how he assesses Ireland's air and sea capabilities.
3: Most military operate in air, land, maritime and cyberspace. They're they're the four kind of primary domains. And when it comes to air, um, we don't have primary radar that's capable of looking into our airspace or our uh, controlled airspace. And this is particularly important because 75% of all air traffic routed to the United States from Europe and the Middle East and Central Asia uh, flies through Irish control airspace. And the fact that we can't see into it uh, makes us unique uh, outliers. So we actually rely on the Royal Air Force to patrol our airspace, to monitor it. And when, as as you mentioned, from time to time when it is surveilled and explored by Russian aircraft, uh, it's the RAF that becomes aware of their presence and you know intercepts them and, and tries to uh deter them from um you know operating in airspace with the transponders turned off an airspace that is really you know got a lot of heavy traffic commercial airlines heading for the United States. So you know it's quite it's quite dangerous.
0: We also Those are British aircraft then.
3: Yeah so the, and we have a memorandum of understanding with the with the with Britain. So they basically control our airspace and provide our air protection. we were not capable of doing it ourselves. And, um, you know, for a neutral state, that's that's not a good position to be in because whilst we're not formally aligned, we are, well, completely dependent on a NATO member for our uh, air protection. In terms of the maritime space, we control, you know, millions of acres of European and Irish territorial waters. There are up to 19 fibre optic cables connecting mainland Europe and Ireland with the United States through our actual territorial waters and more broadly in the exclusive economic zone. In addition, we've got like really valuable fish stocks and other natural resources there. We're unable to patrol it meaningfully. We we only have, I think at the moment, six naval vessels that are capable of patrolling. uh, And a lot of our naval vessels are actually tied up, uh, capital assets tied up in base because we don't have sailors and personnel to, to man them because of a retention and pay crisis.
0: So they're just moored somewhere unused.
3: Yeah, they're tied up, which is extraordinary. I mean, I think we're the only, again, member of the European Union that would have a modern capital asset, such as a coastal patrol vessel, actually tied up because we can't find sailors to to operate it. And actually this year, in 2021, Irish fisheries authorities had to ask the European Union to send a European fishery protection vessel into Irish waters to patrol it because the Irish government couldn't couldn't provide that service.
1: Another key area of modern day defense is actually cybersecurity. The perils of weak cyber defences were really exposed this year when Ireland's health service suffered a massive cyber attack, uh, the largest cyber attack ever seen on a health system to date. And all that was happening in the middle, of course, of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Basically, the hackers took control of the health service computer system and demanded a ransom to release it. And that meant that right in the middle of the pandemic, all outpatient and radiology appointments were cancelled, The COVID-19 test booking system was taken offline. Doctors couldn't even access patient records. So you can just imagine the fallout from all that. Like the impact of that is still being felt even now. Um, If that wasn't bad enough... We know that at least some private data ended up online from, from that breach, and that means that it's likely that scammers will use that information to target people in Ireland in the future, using things like their phone numbers, their names and addresses, you know, trying to get into their bank accounts and stuff like that. Of course, you know, this is terrible, right, for, for everyone in Ireland, but there's also a huge business dimension to that. Ireland is famously home to the European headquarters of, you know, big tech giants, Google, Facebook, and, you know, lots of others. Tom explained why this means that the security is particularly important for Ireland's economic interests.
3: Ireland currently holds 33% of all of the European Union's data uh, in over 54 data centres in Ireland. We've got headquartered some of the biggest uh, data Multinationals in the world, a lot of them United States based, so like Google, Facebook, TikTok this year, Twitter, and so on. We, we don't have any cyber defense capability here. Uh, no, we have nothing, actually, uh, which again makes us outliers. Our cyber defense element in the Corps of Engineers and the Defense Forces is depleted because of retirements, lack of retention. And the National Cybersecurity Center currently has no director. And is un- completely underfunded, and as a consequence, then we've suffered cyber attacks from groups like Wizard Spider, attack on our health services executive at the height of the, the the COVID crisis. I think we really need to straighten up and fly right. It's so central to the national interest. This is what we base our economy on. It's part of how we see ourselves in the world as a modern digital economy. But if we can't protect it or secure it, you know, well we need to we need to invest in that also.
0: I asked Tom about what strategic challenges he saw for Ireland going forward. And he mentioned a really interesting point as the idea of a referendum on ending the partition of Ireland becomes more expected as a medium term probability.
3: We're looking post-Brexit. We're staring at the twin barrels of some form of an all-Ireland entity. And there has been no planning for what the security, intelligence and policing architecture for an all-Ireland entity is going to look like, for me personally, that that's an extremely worrying development because, you know, a United Ireland, whether we like it or not, or whether we're ready or not, it is on the horizon, and we're not particularly well prepared for it. We haven't been planning. We we don't like to talk about it. It seems to be a taboo topic. Some some commentators and media and politicians talk about the prospect of a United Ireland as something like the reunification of West and East Germany, and. It's not, it's, it's more like the Balkans and having been in the Balkans at the end of that conflict, I know how difficult that uh, might be for us here. We, we could see, we've already seen a renewal of dissident um, terrorist activity on, on from all communities. We've seen an absolute explosion in the activities of organised crime and terror groups here on, on the island. If we move towards an all-island entity by choice or de facto abandonment by Uh, other parties such as England in a a post-Brexit scenario. Uh, If we plan for it, you know, it could be a great success story. But if we don't plan for it, which is what's happening now, it could be a very, very dangerous and uh, unpredictable scenario. And at present, our defence forces are certainly not capable of securing the ground here in, in the 26 county republic, and certainly would not be capable of dealing with even a minor escalation of public disorder or even worse, you know, terror attacks or ethno-nationalist sort of violence on the island, we just would not be in a position to contain that or to control it.
1: That was a really interesting interview, by the way, and we're only playing part of it here. So if you want to hear our full discussion with Tom, we're actually going to post that in full over on our Patreon. You can find us on patreon.com forward slash the Irish passport. So you can check it out there. Now, Naomi, we mentioned at the very beginning of this episode that there is currently quite like a lively debate in the EU about the future of defence and security. Uh, I know you've been covering the context of that quite a bit um, in your role as the Irish Times Europe correspondent. So I would love you to lay out for us what that debate is actually about and how Ireland's neutrality fits into it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the EU debate on this has, of course, evolved over time, but I'll sketch it out here in a nutshell. So if you were going to make an argument for an EU army, it would probably go something like this. Why would EU countries have small militaries that inefficiently replicate spending on all kinds of areas when they share the same interests? And if they cooperated together, they would be one of the world's most powerful forces.
1: Hmm. I've I've actually never thought about it that way.
0: Nevertheless, though, the positions of different countries within the EU are very different. And there's a lot of disagreement about this. To basically sum it up, an actual EU army is not going to happen because even the countries that want more defence cooperation aren't even actually arguing for that.
1: Right. Okay. And that's actually not a surprise either when you think about it, trying to get all those countries to align on something as, as important as this. Um, so what do the various countries actually want in terms of defence in, in reality?
0: You have some countries that are more enthusiastic under their current leadership, like France, for example, which really does want the EU to be able to defend its interests by itself, meaning like to be able to operate autonomously of the United States. Um, but mm. france's idea of this thing, which is called strategic autonomy, is really furiously opposed by most eastern European states
1: by eastern european states why why is that
0: because if you're on the border of Europe over in the east, um basically for them, the overwhelmingly the most important defense arrangement is nato it's not the eu it's NATO. They want the US to help them if Russia were to attack them, basically. They don't want the EU moving away from NATO at all. They want cooperation between the EU and NATO. And by the way, the United States shares this position. Washington's always saying, Europeans, listen, please spend more money on their militaries, but don't organize your own separate defense structure because we're stronger under NATO and we don't want our US global military role to be undermined by you guys splitting off and doing your own thing.
1: Okay, right. So there's lots of uh, lots of interesting interests kind of uh, overlapping here. Mm-hmm. Um, am I right in thinking that the idea of European defense policy is something that, like, you know, is different now than it than it used to be?
0: It is really different in the same way as we think about conflicts as different. You don't have like enormous, mm-hmm. huge armies of like millions of people like meeting together. So just as sort of war and so on changes over time, so does the idea of what defence means. And now it's all about stuff like hybrid attacks and, you know, cyber and that kind of thing. And much, much fewer, like, troops on the ground kind of ideas. So when the debate kicked off, it was the 1990s. And the context then was the Balkan Wars. So at that point, there was ethnic cleansing going on in southeastern Europe we're talking about the area that was Yugoslavia, but is now like Croatia, Slovenia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Serbia, and so on. It runs parallel down the to the east of Italy, along the coast of the Adriatic Sea. Um, so United Nations peacekeepers went in there, including from Ireland. And later on, there was also NATO intervention. And various European states were part of those that responded. And at that time, That was when the lack of coordination became very clear. So, for example, Mm. the European soldiers from different EU member states couldn't speak to each other over the radios because their radios weren't compatible, for example. So stuff like that was sort of revealed as a real just organizational handicap. And the whole thing became an experience that drove proposals for more cooperation in defense.
1: Right, okay, so I suppose you could understand that at least some kind of base level um, plan for cooperation would be drawn up after an experience like that. Like um, having
0: the same radios, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, having the same radios, right. What was the bigger picture, though? What was the big idea for the EU's future of defence going to be?
0: Yeah, the, so the big thinkers then who were very pro-EU defence cooperation were thinking of really significant large joint forces. They were thinking of big groups of soldiers, up to maybe 60,000 troops. Um, Mm. But that absolutely never happened. And there was nothing agreed that came anything near to that. The EU did, though, put together something which is called the European Union battle groups. Those are groups of like 1,500 troops. They're made up of different member state armies, and at any given moment, two of them have to be like ready to go. So the idea is hmm. that they could be rapidly deployed on missions that are led by the United Nations at any time. But, Tim, do you know how many times they have been used in all these years that they've been in existence?
1: <laughs> I do not. I do not, Naomi. How many times have they been used?
0: They've never been used. The battle groups have never been used. There's actually never been the political support to use them.
1: Oh, wow. OK, right. What an interesting situation. Now, coming into all this, uh, is something I believe is called Pesco. It's not a, it's not a fish distribution, um, company. Uh, (laughs) No, this is quite an important element of all this, PESCO. What what does PESCO stand for, first of all, and uh, what does it mean?
0: PESCO stands for Permanent Structured Cooperation. What it means is different EU states teaming up to cooperate on defence projects of all kinds. Um, And if they come up with a joint project, that project can then qualify for co-funding from the European Defence Fund. That's money that comes out of the EU general budget that all the member states contribute to. Um, So those PESCO projects can be about anything, really Uh, cooperating on maritime patrols or scanning, developing a way to scan the terrain or, you know, cooperation on cargo transport or cyber training to combat attacks. It's, It's really anything. It's a relatively new thing. It started in 2018. And Ireland takes part in some of it. It's part of a project that involves maritime surveillance that's led by Greece, and it's also an observer on loads more stuff, including medical training, uh, projects to do with disaster relief, and also radio communications. All of the projects that Ireland is part of are quite carefully chosen to fit with the domestic sensibilities that there are around defence and neutrality.
1: I mean a lot of people will remember that these ideas of joint european defence of a european army etc this was one of the big kind of scare stories uh during the brexit referendum or the brexit campaign and a lot of it was proven to be um groundless of course like 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 so much else uh in that campaign um but now that the uk has actually left is this going to affect the eu's defence cooperation like would it ramp up now that there isn't a dissenting voice from britain
0: Yeah, this is like an argument that is kind of commonly heard. But the idea that Britain was the sole dissenting voice on Mm. EU defence plans is just like really ridiculous. Like like I said, there's loads of disagreement about um, defence among EU members. and There's loads of, you know, objectors like Ireland and Denmark. Like an army has a definition, you know, armies have headquarters and command structures and stuff. That just isn't something that anyone is proposing because everybody knows that you know, they, it wouldn't be agreed on. Like, nobody wants that. Yeah. It's just not really on the table. What you're looking at is member states keeping their own armies that they have, but just trying to sort of work more seamlessly together. Um, however, there is going to be a big debate about this. There's going to be a lot of consideration and time given to broader defense strategy. And that's really been given momentum because of the context of the broader geopolitical destabilization that's going on, particularly towards the east of Europe. Um, mm. and of course, the Kabul evacuation, because that was not just for Ireland. It was a rude awakening for the Europeans in terms of the limits of their power, because essentially they relied on the Americans to secure Kabul airport in order to be able to evacuate their own people. And they actually asked Biden to stay on for longer and he refused. So it kind of became a symbol of not being able to count on the US. And it's used as an argument now to strengthen what the EU can do on its own.
1: So the EU has to kind of think about alternatives right now, and what, are, what kind of ideas are coming up? What are, what are the general proposals for the future of, of EU defence?
0: Currently, a big strategic review is being drawn up. Now, we don't know the full details of it yet, but the defence ministers of all of the 27 member states met to discuss them last week. So there's a draft on the table. One detail that we know that's in it is a proposal for a rapid deployment force of 5,000 troops that could, for example, go and secure Kabul airport very unlikely that such a thing would recur. But anyway, um, could go and do something like, for example, set up checkpoints on the EU's eastern border, where at the moment there's this manufactured migration crisis that's caused by the dictator in Belarus flying in people from the Middle East. Um, I don't know personally how much credence I give this rapid deployment force idea because I we've already have battle groups, as I said, and they've never been used because there isn't the political mm. will. So what is this adding the rest of the proposals are expected to be more of a strategic review and assess stuff like what does the EU need to do to defend its interests in airspace, in maritime, in cyber? How do we deal with hybrid attacks and misinformation and so on like that?
1: Right. And so at some stage, like a decision is going to have to be made in all this. I mean, this is a lot of talk. And yes, you know, um, the decisions is going to be hard to make at the end of the day. Right. So like, when would you expect any of this to be actually decided?
0: I wouldn't expect anything dramatic to be decided at all. Um, You'll have a lot of discussions about this over the next few months, and Mm. it will be hashed out into a document that is sort of vague enough (laughs) that all the EU member Mm. states could agree on it. Um, There's also been calls for, you know, can we change the approach here? Can we make it so that if a certain smaller group of EU member states wants to go further on this or wants to be more ambitious, they can do that? And, you know, other ones that don't want to be part of it can, you know, not be part of it, but don't, doesn't stop the rest of them going ahead. We'll see what comes out of it. In In January, France is taking over the rotating EU presidency for six months. And as I mentioned, they're very keen on this idea of strategic autonomy. I understand that they plan to hold some kind of defence conference. So we can expect a lot more discussion about these topics and plans coming up.
1: Speaking of vague uh, wording of military (laughs) policy, let's bring all this back to Ireland and Ireland's fuzzy uh, version of neutrality. Ireland must be a a bit of a strange fish, actually, in all of this, right? I mean, like, how does it fit into the European debate on on all of this?
0: Yeah, it's not alone, remember. There's, like, six Mm. neutral EU member states or so. Nevertheless, you know, it's awkward. The EU does, like have an unstated ambition to have common defence. Could you describe that as an alliance, the kind of thing that Ireland isn't supposed to be part of? That's the question that I put to Simon Coveney, Minister for Foreign Affairs and Defence, when I spoke to him right after he and the other defence ministers had been presented with the first draft of this strategic defence plan. So let's hear what he said.
4: Ireland works with other EU partners, Uh, in the context of common common security and defense issues all the time. Um, But we do it in a way that's consistent with our traditional policy of neutrality, Um, consistent with what's in our constitution. And that's what we'll do in the context of what's called the strategic compass, which is under debate tonight, which is around the future of EU common security and defense and how different perspectives and different countries are accommodated in, in that context. And so, so I think we can we can work strategically with other EU partners. We're already doing that in areas like cyber security, in terms of sharing maritime information in the context of drugs interdiction and so on. So, I think you know there are a number of countries in the European Union that are not members of NATO that regard themselves as non-militarily aligned and neutral states. Ireland is one of them, and uh, the beauty of the European Union is that it, it accommodates that perspective while at the same time trying to coordinate better the protecting the security of, of Europeans. There is another point of view though which is
1: that plans like these are a challenge to Irish neutrality and that's something you know that is very very present so we should take a look at this as well.
0: Absolutely. So the most significant political force that's loudly sceptical about this whole theme of EU defence plans is, of course, Sinn Féin. Um, In their view, there are a whole series of black marks in the book that they see as acts by Irish governments that undermine Irish neutrality. So perhaps we can go through some of them.
1: Yes. So in 1997, Ireland joined NATO's Partnership for Peace, The Partnership for Peace is a cooperation agreement with NATO that other neutral countries are also in. It's not being a member, but it's being basically clear about which way you lean.
0: Right. Um, There are various times as well that Irish troops were part of United Nations missions that then went on to take part in NATO-led operations, including in Afghanistan.
1: And then there's also Ireland's participation in EU joint battle groups that you mentioned, as well as joining PESCO and supporting the funding for PESCO projects. And all that comes out of the common EU budget that all member states contribute to.
0: Now, clearly, the Irish government's view is that all of these things are consistent with neutrality. And as we've seen, you can be neutral and still have defence forces and spend on defence. It's it's not the case that, you know, any defence bending in itself is contrary to neutrality, that would be another understanding of neutrality, which is a bit more perhaps like pacifism. So maybe the rejection of use of any force outright.
1: Some inconsistencies, however, kind of stand out a lot more than others and have become kind of iconic uh, in the question of Ireland's neutrality. Uh, So the biggest and most controversial issue that neutrality has seen, really, uh, was the decision by the Irish government after the 9-11 attacks to let the United States use Irish airspace and Irish airports. That decision meant that U.S. aircraft stopped and refueled in Irish airports during the war and U.S. troops were passing through Shannon Airport in particular en masse. And they continue to do so. Tens and tens of thousands of U.S. troops still pass through Irish airports every
0: year. Right. And there's also some evidence to suggest that the U.S. brought people who were renditioned through Ireland. Just Mm -hmm. to recap, extraordinary rendition was a practice by the CIA of basically kidnapping people and whisking them away to another jurisdiction where they had total power over them. And they were able to use extreme interrogation techniques, including torture, to try and get information out of them. It was a really, really black chapter of recent history. And I think there's a lot of discomfort in Ireland that, you know, our airports could have had anything to do with it.
1: And like once again, we see the impact as well of international pressure on Ireland's neutrality. Now, we saw that, of course, in our last episode when it came to World War II. Uh, But in wars like this, let's say in the Middle East, Ireland's geographical position is also still quite important. It's on the very, very western edge of Europe. So for any transatlantic crossings, it does become quite a strategic spot. Now, all this actually provides some really important context to things like the infamous Nice and Lisbon Treaty referendums uh, in Ireland. Those referendums, you know, famously were rejected, uh, initially anyway, by the Irish public. Uh, Fears about threats to Irish neutrality due to common EU defence plans were key to the success of the no campaigns that didn't want those referendums to pass. In both those cases, the Irish government actually received reassurances on neutrality and it was only then that, that the treaties were approved. So in the case of Nice, all the members of the EU had to declare that they accepted that Ireland could only take part in EU activities of a military nature if they passed the so-called triple lock. That means a UN mandate, approval by cabinet and approval by Dáil Éireann.
0: In the case of the Lisbon Treaty then, there was an additional step for the second referendum, Ireland got an annex attached to the treaty, which spelled out that it didn't interfere with the Irish constitution on various topics. It had the key sentence, quote, the Treaty of Lisbon does not affect or prejudice Ireland's traditional policy of military neutrality.
1: So you can really see in those moments there, you know, just the palpable, tangible <laughs> depth of feeling uh, that there is in Ireland uh, about neutrality. Yet, I think there does remain quite a lot of scepticism about this whole thing. Like, my feeling is that Irish neutrality is such a highly valued thing by the public that there's real hesitation about EU projects, which fundamentally I don't think people necessarily have that much information about or, you know, know that
0: much about. Yeah, definitely. I I think the public perception about defence in general in Ireland is quite unique. Basically, my... My kind of take on it is that due to historical reasons, um, perhaps understandably, there's a real suspicion of hard power and particularly dominance through hard power. Mm. In Ireland, the use of force in the service of the nation is actually celebrated, just like it is in many countries. But in Ireland's case, it's the underdogs who are being celebrated. It's not generally state actors. It's the people who fought to throw off British rule at a time when they weren't recognized as forces of state.
1: Right, yeah, that's an that's an interesting context too. Uh, now, having said all this, if you look at opinion polls, there is majority support in Ireland of about sixty percent uh, for EU defence cooperation.
0: Yeah, um, but remember, Irish people generally answer extremely positively on EU issues in general in polls. So 60% is actually mm. relatively low for us, but it is nonetheless significant. Um My question is, though, about spending. So it's certainly the belief of politicians in Ireland that the Irish public has a very low tolerance for increased taxes. And that's perhaps borne out in the fact that the left-wing and the right-wing parties in Ireland are both united on this issue of being generally against increasing taxes on people. So now, mm. if people don't want to be taxed for stuff that they outright want, like a health system without waiting lists or public housing or a comprehensive public transport networks, all things that are very popular, then are they going to agree to be taxed for stuff that they don't mm. particularly want or care about, like defense capabilities? That's my question.
1: Yeah, I, I feel like that would be very unlikely. I feel like there's a, <laughs> a lot of pushback against that. And I suppose when you think about it, fundamentally Ireland's approach has actually worked so far, you know, like we have managed to get along without spending too much on this. And, you know, without getting dragged in, at least active participation um, into things like the disastrous US and UK led wars in the Middle East, you know. So we've been surviving quietly, maybe hobbling a little bit, but doing okay like, like we've been doing so far
0: yes and our allies help us out whenever we're stuck for a long-ranged aircraft so you know if it was planned this way if it was all a plan you'd almost call it genius um not a plan though it's just how it kind of worked out <laughs> But uh, to be serious, though, um, I do think that there is a debate that Ireland is going to have to have for a number of reasons. This debate is going to come to Ireland, whether Ireland (laughs) seeks it or not. Um, So reason number one is that enough countries in the European Union are interested in a more common defence, that this will continue to be a topic of discussion. And there will be be proposals that Ireland will have to respond to. Um, Second reason, the next Irish government might have Sinn Féin in it. And their positions on defence will be quite challenging to the status quo as regards EU defence. So there's going to be a debate there. And finally, you know, Ireland has interests. Unfortunately, we live in a world where there are threats to those interests. And whether we like it or not, we geographically sit between Britain and the US in a place that has always been strategically important, as we laid out in part one of this episode. And unfortunately, we're living in a time of increasing instability. So there may be events coming out of our control that are unpleasant and that will force difficult choices upon us.
1: Let's hear a final few words from Tom Clonin, who summed the current
3: situation up for us. During the Troubles, you know, when we had a major internal security problem in in the Republic, the general public seemed to have a passing interest in security matters, because I think they and well, most especially politicians, felt that they were at risk from, you know, a security threat. But since the Good Friday Agreement and the the peace process, part of the peace dividend, ironically, has been that Irish people just aren't interested in security, intelligence or defence. I know for the last 21 years, writing as a defence and security analyst, it's very hard to pitch stories and get people interested on security and defence I think Irish people just generally, we don't have a tradition of military service. We don't have a military culture as they do in other European states or a polity at the moment that just sees defense as a cost center and perhaps doesn't fully understand our neutral status. The global world order is, is changing very, very quickly. And, you know, if there was an end of history period, it is now over. We're now emerging from the postmodern period into a new period of, of instability. Uh, with the withdrawal of the United States from Afghanistan, Russia, China, Iran, Pakistan. They are the main players in Central Asia. And with Britain gone from the European Union, <clears throat> you're going to see the prominence of Germany and France. And what will a European Union led by France and Germany without the moderating hand of Britain? What will that look like? What will our relationship with Russia be in 10, 15 years time? <laughs> Difficult to predict. And I think in all of that instability and uncertainty, I think it's so important that Ireland retain its neutral status because we, we are respected around the world as an independent, neutral country, irrespective of the anomalies in our, in our de facto practice. Um, and our diaspora has benefited hugely from that. And there are our neutrality, our diaspora, I think they're huge assets major calling cards for Ireland and we need to really um, protect that. You know, some of our political parties, particularly Fine Gael, really want us to get rid of our neutral status and become militarily aligned and I think that that is, it it is the wrong thing to do and it is the wrong time in these uncharted waters. I think it's really important that we keep our our neutral status and when I think back to my own peacekeeping service in Lebanon, I, I was a peacekeeper as a young officer in the 90s in Lebanon during a very, very violent deployment. And during my service in Lebanon, the Israelis came back in over the border and they they carried out a punitive operation against the people of South Lebanon called Operation Grapes of Wrath in 1996. And hundreds of innocent Lebanese men, women and children were, were slaughtered in that punitive operation uh, in response to Hezbollah attacks. And it culminated in a massacre of of women and children and, in, you know, innocent civilians on our neighbouring UN post in a, a little place called Kwana. And, you know, as a young guy, we went in amongst the, the, the injured and the dying on that day with no medical training, no nothing to prepare us for that experience. And, you know, we gave comfort and assistance where we could. And, you know, we couldn't do anything for so many people the, the two days after Kwana, um actually not even, 24 hours after the massacre at Quana, I was back at home, walking up Grafton Street, holding hands with my girlfriend, and I didn't have the vocabulary or the language to describe that experience, but it is what informs my understanding of Ireland in the world, and it informs my understanding of what could happen on this island if we don't prepare properly and reach out to each other and reach out to all of the communities in this island and start to talk to each other about what's going to happen next um, as, we, as we move inexorably towards an all-island um, reality. And that, in the context of a broader, very, very destabilised geopolitical order, you know, we need to wake up and smell the coffee and appreciate the peace, value it, but invest in it and protect it. Well, on that note, that's all we have for this edition of the Irish
1: Passport podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And don't forget, we'll be posting the full interview with Tom Clonan over on our Patreon. If you would like to support the podcast, you can become a subscriber to Patreon today at patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport.
0: Thanks again so much to our sponsors, Irish at Heart. Head on over quickly before the end of the month to the link in our episode description to get a Christmas box and do use the coupon Irish Passport to get 15% off.
1: Sláon, everyone.
0: Sláon.